Today we're finishing up a series we've been doing for several weeks now called Discipleship Begins at Home. And in this series, we've been looking at examples in Scripture of how important it is for us as adults to pour into and disciple the generations coming behind us. And today we're finishing up with uh, another key thing we need to really focus on in that process of discipling them. And that is how we need to be saturating them with Scripture. I want to begin with a couple of verses that emphasize how important it is for us to, to get Scripture into the hearts and minds of our children. 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17, talks about how important it is that, that Scripture is so valuable, it's so uh, helpful, it is so necessary for us to have in our hearts so that we can live out the life God wants us, wants us to live. It says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and what you've become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And listen to this. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Paul is speaking to Timothy, someone that he has decided to disciple and mentor and pour into. Timothy's younger than Paul, and Paul's trying to help him uh, as a leader in the church. And he says, I know how from the time you were just an infant, you have been given and poured, had poured into you the Holy Scriptures. He says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So right away, he says the most important value to putting Scripture into those coming behind us is that it makes you wise for salvation. What could be more important than that? We want those children coming behind us to find their way to the salvation that God offers. How do they find that? through scripture but then he gives us more and more of the benefits of scripture he says all scripture is god breathed is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of god may be thoroughly equipped for every good work if we want the generations coming behind us to fulfill god's planned purpose for their lives do all the good work that god has prepared in advance for them to do they're going to need a knowledge of God's word. They're, they're going to need more than just the knowledge of it. They're, they're going to need the example of what it means to live it out. They're going to need the, the wisdom of understanding the value that it has, not just that they can quote it, but how it applies to their everyday life. And, and as our culture goes through all the changes and transitions that we face, it becomes more and more important for our young people to have the word of God as the foundation for the decisions about how they're going to live. And on this Father's Day, I wanted to share another passage from Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, where it talks about the importance of the fathers playing the role they need to play in discipling their children coming behind them. It says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Well, where do you find the training and instruction of the Lord, Scripture, in God's Word. That's where it's found. There are a lot of theories about child rearing and, and changing children's behaviors and all those things, but, but the Scripture teaches us that the primary responsibility of a father to his children is that he trains them up. That means an ongoing training regiment in the knowledge and understanding 
of God's word and the teachings of the Lord because of the value that it has for them that we saw in, in the passage we already looked at. It has so much value that we ought to want to put them into that training. And dads, you need to be the front line on the training of the children, the discipling of the children. And then other adults, we need to, to use our roles as adults to, to, to pour into those children in every opportunity that we have. And the church wants to come around you. Our, our teachers and leaders at our church want to come and, and, and encourage and support that teaching that, that you've started doing with your own children in the home. All of us, whether we're parents or not, dads or not, can play a part in bringing them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Well, I want to look at four uh, important benefits or reasons we need to make this the emphasis and the focus of our discipleship of the generations coming behind us. The first important thing about God's word is it reveals God's will. I know people seem to struggle. I, I guess all of us have struggled at some point in our lives trying to determine what is it that God wants for me? How does he want me to live my life? What does he want me to do uh, career-wise, family-wise? All of those choices we have to make along the way. God doesn't want to leave us in the dark on the principles that should guide all of those decisions. That's why he's given us scripture. He's given us his word. My life verse is Romans 12, 1 and 2. And verse 2 uh, uh, of that passage says this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, here's the benefit of doing that. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I'm always amazed at how people will rationalize what they want God's will to be and convince themselves that something they want to do is actually God's will for them, even when it contradicts clear teaching in Scripture, even when it goes against everything God says he wants for us in our lives. We'll get friends that will agree with us. We'll get, we'll get society, somebody in, in, in government or somebody, a teacher along the way or, or somebody that we think will, will side with us when we're trying to convince ourselves that something is really God's will when in fact it's not. I want to caution all of us. Listen to me clearly here. If you want to know God's will, you can know this for sure. God's will for you will never contradict God's word ever. So if you want to be clear, be able to test and approve clearly what God's will is for you, as he says here, you have to go to his word. You have to be listening to the teachings of scripture. You have to be putting it in your heart and in your mind and letting that be the authority and the guide for how you determine God's will in every part of your life, whether it's schooling or, or, or career or marriage or relationships or, or whatever it is, you find God's will in God's word. You can't separate God's will from God's word. God never contradicts himself. And sometimes people have been convinced that God's will in his word is just too restrictive. It's just too hard. It's just going to keep me from fun or enjoyment or doing the things I really want to do in life. And there are times when it may keep you from doing something you wanted to do. But you have to understand this about God's will. It is good. It is pleasing. 
and it is perfect. God's will is always what God in his wisdom knows is best for you. There's a reason for it. There's a reason that boundaries there. There's a reason that freedom is there. There's a reason that caution is there. There's a reason that encouragement is there. It's because the wisdom of God knows if you follow that path and you stay within the boundaries that he sets, that's where you find the greatest joy, the greatest fulfillment. That's where you find the abundant life that God wants you to have. So the first reason we need to really pour into those generations coming behind us, God's word, the scriptures, is because that's where God's will is revealed for them and for us. The second reason is it's powerful. God's word is simply very powerful. Hebrews 1 and verse 3, it says this about, about Jesus being God uh, and, and how he reflected God and reveals God to us. It says this, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, and it says, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Sustaining means holding all things together, giving support to all things, making all things work the way they need to work. It is the powerful word of God that does that. You see, Jesus is the word made flesh, the scripture says. It's by his word everything was created. It's by his word everything is sustained. It's by his word that we have the guidance to live life according to the plan that gives us the greatest blessing. God's word is powerful. In Hebrews 4 and verse 12, he said this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. That's both a great encouragement and a great cautionary scripture. The encouragement is, it is so powerful. It is able to penetrate into our hearts and our minds, our lives. So much so, it says, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. That's precision and how it penetrates into our lives. And the good part of that is, it opens up and reveals to us that which is good. And it, but it also, the negative side is, it exposes that which is bad. The imagery here is, is much like that of a surgeon doing surgery where when the surgeon goes in, if there's something that needs to be removed, you have to be very careful, right? You don't want to damage anything else that's good, that's needed, that, that ought to be there. A surgeon, a skilled surgeon is skilled enough to protect what needs to be protected and, and keep healthy what needs to remain while at the same time removing those things that cause disease and sickness, pain and struggle. God's word is that precise instrument that if we will listen and learn and read carefully and let it come into our hearts and our minds, it opens us up and reveals to us these things are good. Nourish those things, feed those things, build those things, but here are the things we need to remove. That's why in a culture like ours where we're dealing with, with such hard issues like racism and injustice and things like that. Here's the great thing about God's word. If we, would, 
if we would do a better job of teaching it and bringing up children with the teaching of God's word, here's what it will do. It will open up the teaching to love your neighbors, yourself, to love God, to love others. And it will remove the teachings or the feelings or the inclinations of the culture that would lead us toward things like racism or injustice. You see, God's word weeds that out of our lives so that we don't follow that path, even if others have before us. It's the transforming power of the living and active word of God that changes individuals. And when individuals get redeemed and changed by the power of God's word, then individuals change the culture. That's why the beginning place of of bringing people back to where they need to be is in the heart and the mind. It's in the teaching of God. That's what we need to do a better job of as the church so that we raise up people who are completely sold out to the teachings of God's word and scripture because that transforms life like nothing else. Well, it is very much a place that reveals God's will. It is powerful. The third thing is this. It fortifies us against sin. And man, do we all need this. The Bible's clear, isn't it? All sin and come short of the glory of God. We all have this battle we're in every day. Satan is the tempter. He is like a roaring lion roaming around looking for people just to chew up and devour and destroy. And, and so he's constantly going to be putting temptation in front of us. The Bible says God doesn't tempt anybody. Don't blame him. It's Satan who is the tempter. So how do we have success when we're so bombarded by temptation to commit sin out there? I want you to understand the temptation is not the sin. The temptation is only the, the avenue through which Satan tries to work to get you to a place of sin. So temptation is not sin. But how do you face temptation and have victory so that it doesn't lead you into sin? Well, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, and by the way, the psalmist knows what he's talking about because he battled with great sin in his own life. And in Psalm 119 and verse 11, he says this, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He says, when he says hidden in my heart, he means he's, he's put it in his heart. And he has, he has made a place for it there. He's allowed it to dwell there in his heart, in his mind. The Bible uses the term heart and mind almost interchangeably because we know the actual organ of the heart is not what controls our decisions. We say from the heart, but it's actually from the mind. But it's at the core of who we are. And God's word put into our hearts, into our minds, gives us the equipping and the power that we need when we face temptation to have an answer that can give us victory even over temptation. And I don't care who you are, how, how much you know about the Bible or about God, how many times you attend church, how many, how many Bible studies you are a part of. This process never stops of having to be equipped and prepared and ready for temptation. And the young people coming behind us are facing struggles and temptations that sometimes I think are, are much greater than what maybe most of us faced growing up. So it's more important than ever for us to be sure they are equipped to face it. 
One of the greatest examples Jesus set for us is recorded in Matthew 4, among a couple of other places too. But in, in Matthew 4, beginning with verse 1, we have the account of Jesus right after he's baptized. He's being led by the Spirit into the wilderness, it says, to be tempted by the devil. You see, Jesus faced temptation, the scripture says, in all points, in all ways, just like we are, yet he was without sin. How did he do that? Well, we have a good example here that reveals to us the, the weapon and the approach that Jesus took against temptation. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, this is the biggest understatement in Scripture, it says he was hungry. Well, after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, you can be sure he's in the flesh like us. He would be famished. He would be hungry. Just like if I miss one meal, I feel like I'm hungry. He's fasted for 40 days and nights, and he is definitely hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, right? He's playing on his ego and the, the idea that you, you need to show yourself and your power here. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, we all know Jesus had the power to do that. He could easily have turned those stones into bread. He created the stones. He created wheat and, and all the elements to make bread. He could certainly turn those stones into bread and he's very very hungry he's probably at his weakest physical point that he ever felt other than when he was flogged and crucified his body is at a very weak state and here's something you need to know God's word teaches us this when we are physically drained we're much more prone to give in to temptation so Jesus is facing this temptation a great temptation at his weakest physical point in his life so far and he, he does this to respond to Satan. Here's what he says. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What was the first weapon Jesus turned to when he faced the greatest temptation of his life to that point? Scripture. It is written. Jesus had put the word into his heart and into his mind. He had grown up with it. His parents had taught him. He had, he had taken it seriously. He had the ammunition that he needed, the resources that he needed to face temptation and have victory over it. Satan didn't give up there. He, he, he went on to, to give other temptations. He's, he took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, Satan even uses scripture, pulls it out of context and twisted it around. He says he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, Satan. You need to know when you study scripture, you can't pull one verse out of context of all the other verses. If you think if somebody's saying a verse says something that contradicts the rest of the Bible, then they're misinterpreting that verse. God doesn't contradict himself. So Jesus corrects Satan by putting that verse in the context of another verse. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So that first verse needs to be interpreted in light of that other verse. Yes, God said he would take care of the Messiah, but he also taught not to put God to the test. In other words, you don't intentionally say, God, I'm going to do this bad thing. If you want to stop me, you'll have to stop me. That's not how you determine 
God's will. If God has already said don't do it, then you don't need to put that to the test. That's, that's what God wants for you. That's his will for you not to do that. So we have to interpret all scripture in light of other scriptures. Well, the devil didn't give up there. He, he took them to a very high mountain, showed them all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Every single time he faced temptation, the response was, it is written. And Jesus, when it came to temptation, batted a thousand. It's a baseball term that means he got it right every single time. We all know we haven't batted a thousand. We've come short so many times. That's why we are so dependent on the grace of God and Jesus paying the price as that perfect sacrifice for us. But here's God's will for us. He wants us to do better with this. And if Jesus was successful by using scripture as his defense, then we can learn from that example and that teaching that we need to put God's word in our hearts and our minds to do better with the temptations that we face. Well, there's a fourth thing that I want us to see about God's word and its benefits, and that is it also unifies the family. If we uh, lead our families scripturally and pour it into our children along the way, then it brings unity to the family. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. He said this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there are no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Wow, that's the ideal. Now, he's writing to a church family. But the truth is, you can think of family in any way, and it applies. Because if the family, every member of the family comes under the same teaching, the same authority, the same foundational uh, boundaries and, and foundational uh, freedoms and foundational uh, guidances along the way. If we're all following the same guidebook, then that brings all of us together in unity as a family unit. So dads, if we're doing this for our families, we're setting the example, we're teaching the scriptures. Uh, moms, come alongside, you're teaching and setting that example. That's being poured into the hearts and the minds of your children and they're being raised, knowing what the boundaries are, knowing what the teachings are, knowing where the authority is. They're all raised with the same leading and guiding and directing. And if they're willing to come under that, then what it does is it unifies the family. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be any battles along the way. There won't be any discussions along the way. There won't be any arguments along the way. But there is a common authority that you settle those things by, and that is the teachings of God's Word. Now, that's true in the church. It's true in communities. Uh, it's true in every organization that if we have a common authority and a common set of standards it promotes unity. Here's the falsehood that we're being taught about unity in our culture today. Is unity means just accepting anything and everything, and that will promote unity. And what it does is it produces chaos. Each man doing what he determines is right in his own heart. That leads to nothing but chaos. There's no common denominator in the culture if there's no set authority 
or guidelines or boundaries or rules to follow. That's why we have to have laws. That's why we created the nation with, with uh, documents that were written to bring everybody under the teachings of those documents. Obviously, we haven't done it well all the time. We haven't been perfect at it. But it was something that brought the people together as a country, as a nation. And in families and in churches, we need to come under the authority of one authority. And when we do that, there's unity. Lakeshore exists. Our, our mission statement says this. We exist exists to connect people to Christ and each other, to grow people to maturity in Christ and serve people in the name of Christ. All of those are found in Scripture. But here's the thing that happens when it comes to unifying us. If we are committed to Christ and his teachings and then we bring others to Christ, they come under his authority and teaching. Here's what happens. The closer we get to Christ, the closer individually I get to Christ and then the closer you get to Christ, the more I follow his teaching, the more you follow his teaching. Not only does it bring us closer to Christ, you know what it does? It brings us closer to each other. We have a stronger bond in unity with each other because we have a common allegiance to Christ and his word. First Peter 1, verse 22 and 23, it says this. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, Love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. It all begins with coming under the teaching of God, responding to his call in your life to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That step into Christ is a step that connects you in unity with the Father and with everybody else that's connected to the Father through the teachings of Christ. If you're ready to take that step today, we want to help you through that process. Message us, let us know, and we'll follow up with you and guide you through those steps. I have so enjoyed teaching this series. You could go back and catch any of them that you might have missed on our website at lakeshorechristian.com because we need to refocus all of our families on accomplishing this process of discipling those that are coming behind us. Now let's take a moment to, to pray and lead into a time of communion with the one that we're all coming under, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have been able to learn the importance of discipling those coming behind us and how important it is that that, that begin in all of our homes. And Father, I pray that now as we take a moment to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, we are reminded as to why he is the one who has the authority we need to come under because of the great love that he has for us and the great power he has to redeem us and give us life. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.